So um, we've been looking at uh, a really fabulous teaching. I, I find this uh, teaching on the first stage of awakening enormously helpful. Uh, it's been one of the things I keep returning to through the years and trying to discover uh, more of the hidden treasures within it. Uh, and we've been looking at the three um, fetters that are uprooted at this stage of awakening. And it's a fabulous teaching because it's like the Buddha's pointing, you know, he's like directing us. These are the things you need to see. These are the things, the not seeing of which are keeping you bound. You know, so just to be able to realize at least this first stage of awakening in this lifetime, you know, it would be fabulous. <laughs> uh, and so we've looked at skeptical doubt. And I started last week looking at Silabhata Paramasa, which is a great word. I love, I, I love saying it, but it's also a very important word. It's a, uh, breaking it down. It's the, um, pre, sila is the precepts and practices. Uh, bhata is like the routines or the duties of our lives. And Paramasa is a way of holding them with grasping or incorrectly. So basically the way that it gets translated is... Uh, you know, uh, attaching to rites, rituals, precepts, and practices in a way that doesn't serve us. It's, it's like holding on to them um, in an incorrect way. The literal translation suggests that uh, it's about um, holding these with a kind of grasping uh, or uh, in an incorrect way. And, and so, hold, you know, if you just kind of look at that together, it's, it's like the, there's a grasping, there's a holding on, uh, or clinging, and that's the primary issue here. There's a way that we're holding it. Uh, and, and, so, um, uh, and, and so there's also this fact of it uh, not being known. It's like, uh, I think you'll see as we talk about it, we're kind of um, in the dark about this, not really seeing that we're holding it in these, in these ways. And uh, Ajahn Chah even said he uses the word um, blind attachment to rites, rituals, precepts, and practices uh, in his definition, which I think is very telling. There's a way that uh, we're not aware. We're not seeing what we're doing. And the incorrect view in it which is, is very interesting. It's, it's the view that one becomes pure simply through performing the practices or um, you know, dropping into uh, patterns of behavior just uh, to start defining uh, prescribed patterns of behavior and, and just trying to drop into those. So we, we imagine that all we have to do, basically, is go through the motions, <laughs> you know, and, and something's going to happen. You know, I think, I don't know about you, but I can sure relate to that. I'll bet everybody in this room can relate to it at one level or another. There's a, there's a sense of just putting in the time you know, you often hear this uh, expression of showing up, and um, I never liked that expression, you know, because it, it, it seems to suggest or uh, imply that that's all you have to do, but that's not what uh, we're talking about here. There's a, that's just the, 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 the setup, if you will, <laughs> the baseline for, uh, for practice is just actually uh, establishing ourselves in a practice mode. So, as I said, if we're honest, we've all, we, we've all done this probably in one form or another. And um, we all just have these heady ideas about practice. And these can very much stand in the way of experiencing the things that the practices are trying to take us to. It's like if you can feel it, we're up here. 
We need to be down here <laughs> somehow in the body, in the heart, uh, noticing what's happening. And so last week I talked first about uh, Donna, generosity. <clears throat> and this week I'd like to look at um, Sila and Bhavana and Metta Bhavana and how um, we can hold these incorrectly. Uh, you know, we're practicing in a way that um, makes too much of the forms and not enough of where those forms are designed to take us. You know, Ajahn Man, uh, who's Ajahn Chah's teacher, he said it this way. He said, the Dhamma won't serve us well if all we do is comply with the rules or follow directions. Interesting. So we had, he, he said you, had to, you have to probe into. That, again, that's just the setup. And then in that posture, you look into what's going on. And so it's in our interest just to examine all of this and how we're holding the practices so, so that we can uh, connect with them in a more conscious way. I kind of feel this teaching on Sila Bhatta Paramasa, especially as, uh, as it refers to these three aspects of our practice, as kind of like getting a chiropractic adjustment or something. You know, there's a way that we just, boom, you just need to tweak it a little bit and it, it will be so much better there'll be so much more understanding that's sort of behind or driving how it is that we're practicing. So let's have a look. So the the first one is uh, just clinging to morality, clinging to precepts. It's interesting. When when it comes to living by the precepts, you you can actually pick them up in a very self-righteous and superficial way. You know, there's a way that we, we imagine that the precepts are pointing to a right way to be. And I don't know about you, but I've sure done this. You know, there's, this is the way you're supposed to be. There's a lot of shoulds in this. And so when, um, when, we, uh, when we do that, what happens is we become uh, preoccupied with defining what that, what that right way is. And, and there's an aspect of this that's really fine. You know, you want to understand what the Buddha is pointing to. We want to understand about skillful behavior. But I think the message here is kind of like you can overthink it. You know, you can get too, way too heady about it. So we imagine that prescribed modes of behavior um, are, are this way, and then we try to become them. And, you know, if you know anything about the Buddhist practice, it's like anything that you have an idea about and you are trying to become is a major obstacle. You know, we have to get past this kind of thing. So, and we can even be critical of ourselves and critical of other people uh, when we don't behave in the right way. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but it is funny. (laughs) It's like, you know, you you know. (laughs) And you can feel that. You can easily just get hung up on these shoulds uh, in in our behavior. And, And, you know, we become hypervigilant about transgressions, not only our own, but other people's too. And, you know, I see, I see what you did, I, I saw what you said, you know, I heard what you said. And it's so painful and so unattractive. And, and I think that, um, I, you know, this is really not even remotely in the spirit of the practice of sila. <clears throat> Ajahn Lee defines it this way, he says that, He calls it being attached to those forms of goodness that are merely external, clinging at the level of bodily speech and action. And what he's saying here is that we're clinging to the precepts purely from the level of ideas. And then it's as if he's saying, then all you get really is attachment to ideas. You know, you you don't necessarily get to good behavior. (laughs) 
you just get to the idea about what good behavior is. It's the subtle stuff, isn't it? It's, it's really important to contemplate. So, you know, and it's very tricky. I mean, admittedly, this whole teaching on sila, bhatta, paramasa in regards to the precepts it is very tricky because uh, you have to really measure the components here. You know, we, we want a, a very high standard of practice. We want to establish ourselves in a very high ethical standard. Uh, and we, you want to try um, uh, to muster up a very strong determination around that to live by these standards. That's what we're doing. This is, this is a given. This is the baseline of sila. And that's what we're doing when we take the precepts, when we chant the precepts as we did tonight. Um, it, it's it's a, an effort to you know, stand tall in this sense of, these are my standards for living. I am going to do everything I can to wrap my heart and my mind and my actions around these standards and try to live by that, which is really a high standard. It's a high standard of living. So you want to do that. That's one piece of it. But we also want to be on the lookout for any glimmer of an idea that these are rules or mandates for behavior, uh, you know, or, or that they define somehow a right way to be. Feel how subtle that is? Because it, it's, it's very easy to make that leap without realizing that we're doing that. That, to me, is what he's saying here. That's holding sila too tightly. You've got a, a, a too tight a grip around it. And it's clinging to notions of goodness. So w- when we do that, too, I mean, this is, this is where it gets me, man. It's, it's like it's a setup. That is like an open door for the sense of self to come in and start taking control. You know, it, it's, it's, got a, it's got a right way to be that it's in charge of now. And it's got to uh, get the system going in that direction. And that sense of self, if you, you know it well, this is the bit that is issuing the directives and punishing transgressions. <laughs> you know it? <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. And, and it's, it's like, I experience it like having an, an internal um, dictator. You know, just kind of issuing these directives and then handing out punishments for transgressions over and over and again. And it's so unpleasant and it's so unhelpful. <laughs> it's not actually taking us where it is that we want to go. So practicing with sila requires a balance. You know, we, we set forth uh, or hold on uh, to a resolve. Resolution, resolve. Aditana is a big player here. You have a re- resolve. Um, and, uh, but we also have to learn to let go into what is. Now, these two sound very contradictory, but I think every meditator has to reconcile these two because they are not in, in opposition to one another. You hold the aspiration, you hold the resolve on the one hand, but you also have to see what's there. <laughs> you know, and if you hold the resolve too tightly, then you get all these ideas about the way you should be, and you, I guarantee you, you won't see half of the way you actually are. You know, it, it's, it's amazing what the attachment to ideas can do. Uh, so we have to let go into the moment and see what, what we're trying to see here is our highly conditioned karmic habits and, and patterns of, mo- of body, speech, and mind. 
That's what practicing and living, attempting to live by the precepts is all about, you know, and, and feel the consequences of being stuck in things that aren't skillful and feel the, the happy consequences of aligning with our natural goodness. So yes, we're, tr- we're trying to align with our natural goodness to call it forth, but we also want to see the way that we are. You know, otherwise, uh, what happens is you, you fail to deal effectively with behaviors that don't serve us. You know, it, it takes a lot to be able to meet and greet what our karmic patterns actually are. <laughs> you know, it's not always good news. Some of this stuff is pretty unattractive. But that's the name of the game for us as meditators. We want to see it. We want to open our hearts to it. You know, and you know, and we, we may think it's about issuing directives, enforcing uh, compliance with these behaviors, but you know that we've never changed following those modes. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't happen that way. It may feel like it does, like you 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 issued a command and whipped yourself into shape. But if any behavior changes in any kind of lasting way, it it has come out of direct knowledge. It has come out of direct experience. It doesn't happen out of the head, it happens out of the heart. It has always been uh, through seeing and opening to the way that we are that we actually precipitate the kinds of changes uh, towards goodness that we aspire to. And I first saw this quite a number of years ago where, you know, I have a very good Dhamma body and we talk about our practice on a very regular basis. And we were both, uh, we have this uncanny way of all both being in the same place at the same time. I'm sure you have friends like that, you know. And um, we were observing and, uh, and finally admitting to ourselves how hard we could be on ourselves. You know, and uh, seeing it perhaps, uh, certainly you see it before, but every time it comes around you see it deeper and deeper, don't you? You rarely see the implications of what you're doing to yourself, you know. And, and we realized that we needed to stop being so preoccupied with how we want to be <laughs> and instead just find a way to, to start paying attention to the way that we actually are. You know, that's where all the action is anyway. <laughs> it's all happening right there. Uh, but we didn't know that. You know, it t- takes a while to, to see it. And, but for, for me, and I know for her too, it was, it was such a liberating uh, insight. It was a, such a liberating realization because what was underneath that is the profound realization that it doesn't matter how you are. That's not the point. That's not our issue with practice. The issue, especially with sila, is do you see it? And do you know how it feels when you're behaving this way and when you're behaving that way? All, it's all happening right there, <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, it takes, it takes a while to see it sometimes, you know? And it's an ongoing process, and this is how we overcome uh, attachment to sila, too. Attachment to ideas about a right way to be. You know, just to lose that, and real, and and sort of reconcile these things that feel like a contradiction. But aren't we saying there's right action, right speech, and right livelihood? Yeah, <laughs> but the right here is about what leads to nibbana and what doesn't. It's not about right versus wrong. 
And so we, that, that suggests that you've got to see it. You've got you to find out for yourself what takes you in the direction that is going to free us. So I don't know about what this does to you, but this is so interesting to me. It's such interesting stuff. And uh, the strategies here uh, are obviously very different than what we're accustomed to. You know, we're used to this sense of self. That's been apparently at the helm for uh, who knows how long. (laughs) This lifetime, many lifetimes before, maybe, I don't know. You know, but we're used to that. We're used to that sense of self just kind of saying how it should be and and demanding that we become it, that we shape up, you know. And and then when we misbehave, we're used to the mind um, going into overdrive (laughs) and uh, beating up on ourselves or, or, or moving quickly. The other thing that it does in that moment is move quickly to justifications, rationalizations, anything that it can to actually get away from what actually is. You know, these are all uh, diversions that the mind throws up to not feel the, the dukkha of ignorance, you know, the dukkha of not seeing. And so, so we've been, that's what we're used to. That's what we've been seeing over and over again. And so holding the precepts uh, this way actually will make it very unlikely that we'll change our behaviors. You know, if that's the way we're holding it, um, it's, it's because we, we have ideas, and the ideas about a right way to be obstruct actually seeing the way that we are. And so the, the behaviors can't change. You know, I bet you've seen this. You know, how long have you been looking at certain things and trying to make them change? But maybe sometimes we just haven't gotten the full hit of it yet because we're still going into this reactive pattern towards it. And that's, that's what, what, what needs to be seen and, and avoided, if you will. You know, and again, I, I don't think that working with sila is like this. It's, it's, uh, it's much softer than we make it out to be. So we're trying to see and open our hearts to the way that we behave and to our karmic patterns, to the impulses that drive us, uh, and uh, so that we can discover for ourselves from our own direct experience what's skillful and what is not. It's one thing to have somebody tell us. It's a whole other thing to see it ourselves. It goes, it goes right to the heart. And uh, it, get, it gets in there very, very deep. And so working with sila is about seeing for ourselves the truth of the law of karma. We're trying to see kusala and akusala karma. And we examine our behaviors and see how uh, free and and happy we are (laughs) when we're aligned, when there's the skillful behaviors, and how um, we we, uh, diminish suffering in ourselves and in the world. And then also seeing how miserable we are when we transgress, you know? I don't know about you, but I can sure spin out over some wrong speech, you know? It can fester. It can just go on and on and on and on. And, and you just, uh, you know, the heart is trying to get it. It's trying to get close to what that actually feels like to have behaved in that way. And, and, and so it keeps, like, throwing it up. It says, look again, look again, look again, you know? <laughs> So, um, you know, what happens over the years of practice is then uh, uh, morality becomes internalized. 
It, it gets so deeply rooted into the system that literally it's said of an arhat that they cannot behave badly. <laughs> you know, that the stuff that's driving it is completely dried up. And, and that's our process. That's what we're trying to see. And, and when we've fully internalized morality in this way, then it's actually said that you don't even need external guidelines anymore. You know, and, and I love that, because if you can feel that, it's, it's a, such a person isn't clinging to right and wrong and trying to become one and avoid the other. They know. They know. <laughs> oh, that goes right, right all the way. So, one little piece of this that's very helpful, too, is, um, as you might imagine, or have seen uh, yourselves already, you can't arrive at this um, uh, correct way of working with sila unless you also have a healthy, healthy dose of kindness, <laughs> compassion, and equanimity. Uh, they have to be up and running <laughs> in the playing field uh, simultaneously. You have to be kind because there's, there's a lot of uh, harmful things that we see. And, you know, the, and the compassion for the pain that we feel doing it and the not judging of any of it, that bit right there is really hard to overcome. At least, at least it has been for me. To, to the bit that uh, is finding fault or deciding one way or another about what we see. Getting in there and just seeing it and not having a view about it. That's hard one, isn't it? Let's be honest, that's hard one. But uh, if you have uh, realized that these aren't up and running in the way that we'd like them to be, don't worry about it, because they, they, they get developed of necessity. <laughs> it's like, you know, you try everything else. <laughs> if all else fails, be kind. <laughs> be compassionate. <laughs> try not to hate it. Try not to judge it, right? Don't you find you do that? I mean, this mind is such a trickster and... Uh, uh, so given to habit that um, it, it'll go into its ruts over and over and over and over again, you know. But uh, eventually it, it stops. And, you, and we learn that we, how to hold it. So just one final thing on this uh, about sila. Um, you know, we have so many ideas, and this, this, is, this is a... a more recent realization of my own that uh, has just been so helpful. I have to laugh at myself. Uh, we, we have so many ideas about a right way to be that what happens is that all manner of behaviors can easily get um, pulled into the orbit of our practice with sila. You know, and things that aren't transgressions of sila, <laughs> but they get pulled into the orbit of this. And so it's so strong as our idea that there's a right way to be that um, I, I've actually heard myself say to myself, What's wrong with me? Why do I like chamomile tea? <laughs> oh, why don't I like it? Why do I like black tea? You know? And I've heard other people say things like, What's wrong with me? Why don't I like yoga? Yeah? Can you feel the idea in there? There's something, there's something that, especially in our world, there's ways that you're supposed to be and, and things that fall outside of that. And if that's not what we're doing, it gets thrown up as something that needs to be taken into this orbit of 
practice and fixed somehow, right? So if you, if you find yourself uh, thinking that there's something wrong with you because you prefer a cup of black tea, <laughs> or thinking that there's something wrong with you because you prefer aerobics <laughs> to yoga, then I, I would say know that uh, you're reaching, um, your search for unskillful behavior in that process, you've probably cast your net out a little too far. (laughs) I saw it one time, it was like trawlers. You know those fishing trawlers that go out and they they're going out for a certain kind of fish, and then, but they bring in all manner of other kinds of things that get snared in their nets, right? And that's what happens. These things get snared in our, our net, uh, some behaviors that in and of themselves are either totally benign or um, there's this fall into some category of harmless personality traits. You know, I can't explain it. This is the way we are. You know, either way, you have to know that we can go into a tailspin over behaviors that don't actually need to change. You feel that? I don't know if you've done that or if I'm touching anything for you, but I sure have done this. And with what we want is an accepting an open-hearted approach, and with that, then you begin to realize that there are lots of behaviors that you don't need to do anything about. <laughs> you know, they're just the way that we are. And, and not long ago, I, I just had this contemplation of realizing that there's seven billion people, there's more than seven billion people on the planet. Every one of them is different. <laughs> Now, how in the heck do I come away with the idea that there's a right way to be? <laughs> but it's there. It's in this mind, you know. And so, you know, and besides, as I was saying, the wise attention involves discerning the difference between behaviors that lead to nibbana and those that lead away from nibbana. That's the target population here. <laughs> and just to realize that, that's what we're looking for when we're working with sila. So I, I don't think that having a cup of black tea will stand in the way of nibbana. But if you think that you shouldn't have one, and then you beat up on yourself because you do, that might stand in the way of nibbana. Can you feel that? You feel that structure that the, the mind is setting up and creating obstacles for ourselves and barriers to the place where we actually want to be. So that's uh, just looking at uh, sila. It's powerful stuff. So now just to look a little bit at bhavana, how we're holding the, the, the meditation practice um, incorrectly, too tightly, too tight a grasp on it, something like this. And, and when it comes to this, the, the sila bhata paramasic, it takes the form of clinging to traditions, clinging to teachers, clinging to methods or techniques or the forms of practice. And, and when we do this, what happens is we sell ourselves short. In, in a way, we get overzealous uh, about in, in our relationships with these, and we fail to take this kind of leap to self-sufficiency. It's like a, a holding on 
to my tradition, to my teacher, to my forms. And uh, at some point, we've actually taken in enough. We know enough about how to practice, but we don't take that leap. We keep going to another talk, to another person, to another something. Yeah? You may see this. So we can get obsessed with uh, choosing or developing the right tradition or the right teacher. You know, and I suspect most of us have done this somewhere along the way. You know, if I could just find the right tradition or the right teacher, then I'll get free because it's in that. If you can feel it, it's in that. It's not here. It's in that. I have to find the right thing. It's, it's all out there somewhere. Uh, you know, or what happens often is that uh, we might argue internally or with other people about which ones are right and which ones are the best. And it's not in that, you know. Uh, or we jump from one uh, tradition or one teacher to another. This is a common thing. And, and sometimes we might even blame them or find fault with them because we didn't get the results that we wanted. <laughs> it's their fault. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've met people like this or maybe been it yourself at some point, you know, who, who kind of go to, from one teacher to another thinking that this one, this new one has it the other one didn't, or there's the, the, the sort of the latest uh, iteration of something. And it's tricky, again, this is tricky stuff, because I don't want to sound critical in, uh, in pointing to this, because, um, you know, they're, they're, we're learning things all the time. We're learning about Dhamma all of the time, and there may be things about each of these traditions or the different teachers that we go to that speak to us. And uh, we, we get a, a, we're actually encouraged in our practice to shop around, you know, to find, find a good fit, <laughs> find the lineage, the tradition, the form that uh, parallels, if you will, the way that your mind works, you know, where you hear it. I want to hear, hear Dhamma. I've got to find the source that helps it go in for me. And, and you know, this is interesting because different lineages emphasize different aspects you know, of teachers, uh, of the teachings. And I've heard myself even wondering, why would somebody like that? You know, it, it doesn't appeal to me. Why would somebody like this? It's not the way my mind works. But you can let all that go because it's just really recognizing that that's the way it is. We, we resonate to different uh, forms and different traditions and different teachers. Uh, and uh, Or we may... Um, be expanding our knowledge with a certain uh, new teacher that comes along. And th- this is all good, very, very good. And you want to do that. But you want to be on the lookout for subtle thoughts or, or suggestions that the answer is in there, in that tradition or with that teacher or uh, uh, out there somewhere or any kind of idea that suggests or implies that now I have it. Yeah, that it's in this thing, it's in this object or this form. Because actually what you're doing in all of this is cultivating skeptical doubt. You're actually building it uh, in the heart. And I'm, I'm pointing to, to something that's quite subtle here, and it, there's a tricky balance. You know, it's, As I said, it's important to find the tradition or the teacher that speaks to us, but too easily we, we might actually be sidestepping the real issue here, which is that no matter what the teaching or who the teacher is, we still have to do the work. <laughs> the, the work is done here, not someplace else. 
That's where all the action is. And one of the suttas in the Sutta Nipata, the Magandhya Sutta, um, it, it's quite pithy on this point here. Uh, Magandhya asked the Buddha, noble sage, you talk of inward peace. How is it described by the wise? And the Buddha replies, I do not say that one attains purification by view, tradition, knowledge, virtue, or ritual. Nor is it attained without view, tradition, knowledge, virtue, or ritual. It is only taking these factors as the means and not grasping them as ends in themselves that one attains purification of view and consequently does not crave for becoming. Can you feel that? Don't hang on to either side of it. You know, and there, there comes a point in, in all of us, in all of our practice, it may come and go, but it does come, where you, you kind of say, you know, enough is enough. <laughs> I, I've taken it enough. Let me just do it. <laughs> Let me just apply myself here. And that's what I think this part of a, the, what this is pointing to. But the other bit is uh, the techniques and forms. And attachment to meditation can take this form as well. It takes the form of a kind of a overzealousness about the forms that we're uh, using. You know, and not enough uh, reflection on what those forms are designed to take us to. What they're, uh, what they're the setup for. They're, the, they're like the, the, the place wherein we can discover certain things. But they aren't the practice itself. They're just the form of that. And Ajahn, Ajahn Lee said this. He said that uh, some people uh, think that they're practicing concentration, but all they're doing is sitting like a post. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> did that hit home? <laughs> you know, and I think I told the story the other night of that time when I found myself walking around IMS during a three-month retreat with uh, just this impeccable apparent presence of mind, walking down the hallways with that right, slow walking, and uh, with my head just right, and, uh, you know, for appearance's sake. I I even had the thought, I remember, boy, if anybody sees me, they're thinking, boy, is she in there. She's real. Look at that yogi, (laughs) you know. (laughs) She's really, really practicing, you know. And then I got to my room, and closed the door behind me, and I went, (laughs) and it was such an eye-opener, you know, I went, whoa, what have you been doing, you know, what have you been doing out there? And it was a fascinating reflection, too, on a whole other level, which was that, um, you know, when you're sitting here in meditation with your eyes closed, the mind is the hijacker, you know? That, that that's what takes you out. Well, when you're walking through the hallways, or oh, what about the dining hall? The eyes are the hijacker. And so you look over there and you see this person and you think, oh, they must be looking at me. And, they, and I want to make sure I look right. Yeah? <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> but we're doing it. And, 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 and it's not to be critical. I mean... If anything, laugh about it. Have a good giggle. You know, you, you, it's the kind of thing that is, is very subtle. But, uh, and, and as I said, that we don't even know we're doing it. 
But if you, once you see it and know that you're doing it, then um, it's as if these sort of magical blinders can come in. And you can actually be in, in a place like this, practicing with all these people, and you're really practicing. You're really in that form, looking at what's happening in the mind, in the body, when you're walking down the hall, not thinking about who's looking at you and what, what they might have to say, you know? So it's really, really, really good stuff, you know, to uh, tweak it like this, really get this sense. Another good example of this was, a, in, you know, in a practice discussion not long ago um, that I had with a, a fella, he, he uh, came in all forlorn and, um, and said that he, he was really ready to throw in the towel. He said, I realized, I just realized that I've been practicing for 15 years. 15 years. And all that I've been doing is sitting there thinking about things. Yeah? And he was like, just crushed with this realization. And, and I said to him, wow, it only took you 15 years? <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I said, you're really good. <laughs> but that's how subtle it is, isn't it? You don't know you're doing it. <laughs> so we can even get obsessed with having a daily sitting practice and obsessed with doing meditation retreats. This feeling of happy when we're doing it, when, we, when you get up a good foot, full head of steam on your daily sitting and you actually, uh, you know, somebody was telling me they have that meditation timer now and it gives a report, you know, <laughs> and it was good news, bad news, but, you know, it, it helps, it, it was helping this person to um, stay, stay with it, to try to do it every day to get the star, to get the gold star, you know. Um, but so, so it, it feels, like you can, if you can feel that, you're happy when you can do it and uh, sad or unhappy when you can't. Same thing with retreats. But all the, mo- all the while that we're doing that, you can miss this subtle grasping in the mind and, and this deluded notion that the, the forms of our practice are somehow the practice. You know, that, that, that I should be sitting, I should be going on retreat. And it's, again, it's subtle stuff because of course you want to have a daily sitting practice. Of course you want to go on retreat as much and as often as you can, you know? But uh, if we're attached to the idea that we should do it, (laughs) then you run the risk, literally, of missing the forest for the trees. You you put too much stock in the forms or the techniques of practice and, and not enough emphasis on applying ourselves within that form. That's what it's about. Or, or, or just um, within every moment of our lives. You know, the, the practice, is, as we know, is a 24-7 kind of thing. The formal, you have to un- give it thought, understand, what is the formal practice? It's pumping up the volume for a period of time. You know, and, and it's useful and helpful, but you don't want to cling to it as this is the practice and, and the rest of my life is not. So uh, applying ourselves within the forms um, means really getting it that our task as meditators is to relax. It's to pay attention. 
and see what you can see. And whatever that is, try not to hate it. And, and do your level best not to have a view about it, not to judge it. It's all right there. It's all right there. Samadhi, sati, metta, upeka. It's all right there. And it's available and accessible in every uh, single moment that we remember. <laughs> and then what, what happens is that you get, you get it at very deep levels that it's not and never has been uh, about subscribing to a form and becoming uh, something that we are not. It, it's never been that. We, can, we go through that uh, in our process of waking up, but it's not that. You really, rather, it's about getting, getting it that it, it really doesn't matter what's happening. And I'm like a broken record with this one because it's been so liberating for me in my own practice. It really doesn't matter <laughs> what's happening. The point is, do you see it? Do you know what it's like to be in it and not? It's all right there. That's where all the action is. And so our task is just to, to know it, to feel it, and to discern from within it whether it serves us. That's our practice. And we can, we can do that every single minute of our lives. So it's not tied to these forms. And that's, that's what this teaching on Sila Bhatta Paramasa is trying to get us to see. And just one more thing about the meditation, too. It, it, this is kind of the flip side of that. It, it's, uh, this Sila Bhatta Paramasa can manifest as um, um, a rushing practice along, or imagining that we're done with um, things before we actually are. You know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I sure have seen myself do it. And, you know, for example, over the years I've, I've met a number of people, including myself, where we say at some point where, um, uh, oh, I don't have to sit anymore. I'm doing it 24-7. I got this. <laughs> it's happening all the time. I can lose the formal practice. <laughs> I was talking to one of, monk, one of the monks about this not long ago, and, and he says, uh, yeah, that's like breaking up the raft midstream before you've reached the other shore. <laughs> you know, he warned me, the mind is a trickster. <laughs> you want to be on the lookout for its ploys. <laughs> And so finally, the metta, metta bhavana. How, how do we do sila bhata paramasa with metta bhavana? And, and we can do it with this as well. You, know, you can cling to, to metta practice as a way of, of trying to force ourselves to feel good about things that we don't feel good about. <laughs> I bet you know this one too. <laughs> I was talking to somebody recently who was... Uh, going into tailspins because um, she didn't like a colleague at work. And she, she did the, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? I'm doing the practice. Why don't I like them? <laughs> you know that one too, I can tell. <laughs> 
And, and so practicing, practicing metta is no guarantee that we're suddenly going to like everything, or everybody or everything in our lives. It's not about that at all, you know. But, you know, we can trip ourselves up with this one. I think if you scratch the surface of that, that's an easy one to see. We don't really believe that. But we do behave as if we believe it, you know. So we want to be able to see that. It, it, it's, it's not a look at me, I love everything kind of thing. You know, it, that's not what metta is about. Uh, this is an attachment to practice, if you can feel that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's as if we think that all, all we have to do is, um, you know, just push some phrases out into the world and, and everything will be all right. You know, we'll stop hating and the world will somehow magically stop hurting us. You know, these are all distortions of what metta is about. You know, we can't, we can't see that what's going on in that is that we're actually repressing what we're actually feeling. So we can cling to practices expecting that because we do them we'll become better people or because uh, we do them uh, when, uh, because we don't want to feel hatred. And this is tricky. I mean, you've you got to feel that that's got to be a bit off. You know, developing uh, metta often requires that we first open to the hatred <laughs> in our hearts. You have to touch that and feel the harm and feel the, the pain of that. You know, I had my baptism of fire with this uh, many years ago when I, one, of the, one of my first trips to the monasteries and... Um, you know, I, thought, I just had these notions that monasteries were these places that you go and everybody's nice and kind and wonderful, you know. And, uh, you know, it's just people like us practicing uh, in, in a different form, slightly different form. You know, and there was this um, fellow there who was uh, such a great teacher for me. He, he just rubbed me the wrong way. He was very coarse. He was harsh. He smelled bad. He dressed funny, and he was always kind of hovering over me, especially in the kitchen, telling me what to do, telling me the way to do it, telling me we don't do it like that here, we do it like this here. It is just, just this annoying, uh, abrasive kind of guy, <laughs> you know? And he wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> uh, and I had a lot of duties where I had to be in the same space as him, and there was, there was no getting away from it. And so I tried everything. You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free. You know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free, you know. <laughs> and just uh, trying to not feel, I didn't know it at the time, but just really trying to get away from what I was actually feeling. And it went on for weeks and, and uh, one afternoon I was walking up the, the hill from the nun's cottage with one of the nuns to the main house and um, I was telling her about it. And, you know, she was pumping me to keep talking, keep talking, tell me what's going on, you know. And then finally, in, in the uh, expose, if you will, I stopped dead in my tracks on the lane. And I just said, I hate this guy. <laughs> and, and she just went, yes. <laughs> Now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> That's what that, and, and to me, what it, what it felt like internally, 
I, you know, it was like this massive belch that came from deep down in my gut, you know. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I'm actually feeling here. You know, can you feel that? It's like not turning away from it anymore. And sooner or later, practicing with metta, that does do that. So I don't want to separate it out like the running the phrases was not part of it. Um, but, you know, it can be a denial too. But just it, it just was a, a, an amazing realization for me that you know you can you can try your darndest to hide. You can try and 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 you'll you'll have some success at it. We all do to to to, to hide uh, behind ideas. I had an idea about myself as somebody. I don't think I've even used the word hatred until that moment. I'm a person who doesn't do that. <laughs> Tricky stuff. <laughs> see, see how free you get with those kind of thoughts in the mind, right? It's, it's just a, a form of hiding away. So with metta practice, you know, you can think that uh, we just have to recite phrases or do metta practice or something like that. But really, uh, I think over the years one begins to, uh, to realize that how big metta is. <laughs> Man, it is so big. <laughs> it is global. You know, it's a critical component. It has to be a critical component of every moment of our mindfulness. You know, if in fact, I would go so far as to say, if that quality of heart, of being open-hearted, receptive, allowing, loving towards what's happening isn't there, then you're not being mindful. They go hand in hand. You know, they, 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 mindfulness without metta isn't even mindfulness. You know, it's, it's got to have that quality sort of deeply imbued uh, into the core of the mind and the heart, that faculty has to be up and running big time. So if you think you're attending and that quality isn't there, yeah, you might want to have another look, you know. So just in summary, looking at Sila Bhatta Paramasa um, as attachment to rites, rituals, precepts, practices, and it's about letting go of a superficial understanding of our practices. Dana, sila, bhavana, metta bhavana. And, and, and in a way, moving beyond this, you know, for, like I was saying last week, with, with, uh, you recognize that dana is about purification of the heart of the donor. <laughs> it's about what's going on here. It's not about the gift. That's part of it, but it's a gift. It's, a, it's about the gift only in relation to how, how it stirs my heart. And it's one of the primary things that we have for overcoming greed and self-absorption in the heart uh, and the mental torment that accompanies both of those. So, you know, we really need to give Donna its due. And Sila is about seeing for ourselves that the truth of the law of karma that skillful actions bring happy results, unskillful actions bring unhappy results. That, that has to be seen. It's obviously, you can hear something like that and go, yeah, well, that's true, I get that. But it has to be seen. 
has to be seen and felt directly. And it's about opening to the way that we are (laughs) and finding the love and compassion in our hearts to, to receive that, to receive all of our behaviors, the whole range, the unattractive along with the attractive. And by the way, the seeing the attractive isn't our forte either. You know, we don't have the habit of, of looking and seeing our own natural goodness and taking it to heart. So it's not good enough to incline towards goodness simply because we think that that's the right way to be. It falls way short of practicing with sila. You know, our understanding just has to go so much deeper than that. And two, I think this is an important point to bring home while we're on the topic of the first stage of awakening. Impeccable sila is one of the four characteristics of that uh, awakening, that stage. Well, that got my attention when I read that a number of years ago. Oh, maybe I ought to go back to the drawing board here, you know? Because really taking sila completely and utterly to heart and purifying uh, our behaviors in alignment with sila. So it's very tied up with our liberation. And, and, uh, so, and finally, we, we no longer think of bhavana simply as the, the form with which uh, we're trying to comply or a technology that we're trying to master but rather um, as a means for us to observe directly what's happening right now? (laughs) What's it like right now? Do I know the condition of my heart? Do I know how it feels to be this way? Do I know uh, about attachment and release? Do I understand that it doesn't matter what I'm looking at? My objective is to be here and see what it is and just to, to take it to heart, to know what it's like. And, and formal meditation is, is just the means for cultivating that kind of seeing. And then, and then finally we understand metta bhavana, not simply as a practice where we cultivate a kind and an uh, open heart, uh, or imagine the world receiving our, our kind thoughts. But rather, uh, we see it as this integral part of seeing and feeling uh, the torment of, of hatred. Uh, feeling that, getting that in there, rock solid. So that, Because this mind is not stupid. If it gets a direct hit of what some of these difficult states are, it'll stop going there. It just needs to, to feel it. But we can't get to that if we have ideas that we shouldn't be that way. They're going to stand in the way. And uh, that's, it's hard one, but we can do it. I'm confident of that. <laughs> we all have uh, what we need in order to, to pull this off, if you will, you know. So, uh, you know, and this is how, uh, over the years, or however long it takes, could be minutes, could be years, could it be lifetimes, but we arrive at this uprooting of this um, uh, fetter of the heart and mind, sila bhata paramasa, attachment, 
to rites, rituals, precepts, practices, holding them in a superficial way that is, is not taking us to the places where they could be taking us. Yeah? So I offer you this for your reflection tonight. I hope it's helpful. Shall we sit for just a moment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.